1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Myra Bradwell the right to practice law specifically because she was a woman. Ms. Bradwell apprenticed, passed the Illinois bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, but the decision to deny her the right to practice law rested on the idea that women were, quote, never contemplated, unquote, to be members of the bar. Things have changed since then, but not without the sacrifice and fortitude of female lawyers. In our first two seasons, we met with a dozen or so female jurists who talked about their backgrounds and paths to get on the bench. This season, we'll expand on those stories and interview lawyers throughout the state of Florida who are trailblazers in their practice areas and role models for male and female attorneys everywhere. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Heddle Desai. Our first two seasons of the podcast focused on trailblazers in the judiciary. This season, we are going to hear from other women in the legal field who are leaders in their areas of expertise and who have made a significant impact on the practice of law in Florida. In this episode, I have the honor of introducing our listeners to the dean of one of Florida's top law schools. As a recent Florida Bar News article explained, 56% of all law students enrolled in law schools in Florida are women. Obviously, we have made great strides since 1960 when less than 4% of the law students at ABA-approved schools were women. Today, of the top 20 law schools, 17 have more female students than men, with the top three, Yale, Stanford, and Harvard, just around 50-50. As the law student population has become more diverse, so has the faculty. At the beginning of the 20th century, women made up less than 5% of the law professors, with almost no female administrators or deans at law schools. Today, almost 45% of law school faculty are female. Even with these advancements, however, a recent paper exploring the progress of women's representation in law schools notes that many of these positions are considered, quote, lower status, unquote, with titles such as instructors, clinical professors, adjuncts, lecturers, and legal writing teachers. These positions often pay less and are less prestigious than full tenured professorships. The first female law dean came onto the scene in 1898, Ellen Spencer Moosey, the co-founder of Washington College of Law in Washington, D.C. It wasn't until 1951 that the first woman became dean of an ABA-approved law school at Seton Hall University. Justice Elena Kagan was the first woman dean at Harvard Law School in 2003. At the time, she was one of 36 female deans in the U.S. Today, almost 44% of law school deans are female. In this episode, you will hear from one of them. I hope you enjoy listening. Today's guest has been the dean of FSU Law- College of Law since 2016. Erin O'Hara O'Connor graduated from Georgetown University Law Center, magna cum laude, and then clerked for a U.S. Court of Appeals judge for the Third Circuit before she began her teaching career. She has been on the faculty of Vanderbilt Law School, George Mason, Georgetown, and Northwestern Law Schools. Welcome, Dean O'Hara O'Connor, and thanks for joining us on Never Contemplated. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you go by Dean O'Connor, I know, um, but I just have to ask, that's a pretty Irish name, O'Hara O'Connor. Where where did you grow up? I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Okay. And, and Yes, it is. I, I tell people I used to think I had the most Irish name possible. Now I know I do. <laughs> And you lived in Buffalo. And did you come from a family of lawyers? 
Nope. No lawyers in my family. What? I was the first to complete a four-year college degree in my family. So no academics either in, in your... None, none. None. So what made you decide to go to law school? Great question. So <laughs> when I was a young child, my parents divorced uh, when I was about seven. Uh, this would have been in the early 1970s. There were not a lot of childcare options available for single moms. So when we didn't have school, we went to work with my grandmother. And my grandmother worked downtown across the street from the courthouse. And I could either help her file papers or if I promised to be good, I could go across the street to the courthouse. And so I loved watching the trials. I loved the adversary system. Um, I just really thought it was so interesting to see kind of a pursuit of truth, pursuit of justice um, with, with so many people involved and dedicated to it. And so one day I was watching a trial and for the first time ever, a female lawyer got up to represent one of the clients and I hadn't seen that before. And it was at that moment that I realized I could do this. I could become a lawyer too. So what kind of student were you in high school? I was... It's interesting. I, I I I remember my high school being three different groups. There were the smart kids, there were the cool kids, <laughs> and then there were the athletes. Um, but I was one of a few students who was involved with everyone. Um, I was nearly six feet tall and athletic. I was in some of the honors classes, but I also just kind of like to kick back and you know, hang out with the cool kids too. So a little bit of everything. So what do cool kids in Buffalo do? Uh, not much. <laughs> uh, hang out at one another's uh, homes and, uh, you know, stay out too late. and Like kids everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about this later, but you brought up your athleticism. I know that you were a synchronized swimmer. Was that in high school? I was, yes. Um, middle school and high school. And I swam on a team that was top 10 team. It was the only team outside of California or Florida to be a top 10 synchronized swimming team. And where did you practice in Buffalo? We practiced at the time at the high school pools. Now they have their beautiful uh, natatorium that's for them and the swim team and then private members. But um, I'm uh, taking I'm guessing that it's an indoor pool. Yes. <laughs> so in, in Kenmore, Tonawanda, which is the area outside of uh, Buffalo I grew up in, Every middle school and every high school had a swimming pool in the school, and the, those pools would be available for lap swimming or, you know, uh, town teams and things like that. And do you sw still swim today? I do. I do. In fact, I'm swimming this evening. Um, what I love about being in Florida is I can swim outdoors year round. Do you have a, a swimming pool at home or do you go to, uh, it's not the Leech Center anymore. I can't yes. remember where the pool is. At yes. We do have a swimming pool at home, not a lap pool. I do uh -huh. some um you know, just sort of fun exercise in, in the home pool. But I'm a big fan of the Truesdale pool Truesdale, here in town. Right. Yeah. So you decided to go to law school from watching these trials. Most kids these days, I guess, would watch Netflix or something, <laughs> um, not be taken in by their grandmother to courthouses. But um, where did you end up going to undergrad? So I attended the University of Rochester, which is where all the captains of the high school math team went to college college. So since I was a captain of the high school math team, I went to college at the University of Rochester as well. I had no idea. I didn't know much about the university at all, but it ended up being a fabulous opportunity for me. Well, most uh, lawyers can't do math, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you are you are pretty good at it. Um, 
what did you major in? My I double majored uh, in economics and political science. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I was an economics major too oh, fantastic. Um, at FSU, but so University of Rochester. Um, but when you were going through an undergrad, did you still think that you were going to be an attorney and your great, your goal was to go to law school? I did. That was my goal all the way through college. I was close with some of my professors who thought I should go to grad school, tried to talk me out of going to law school because I was close with them and saw what an academic career looked like. By the time I attended law school, I was convinced that I would be in the academy, but as a law professor. Uh, rather than as a political scientist or an economist. So you knew that you were basically going to go into academia even after law school. I did. I did. So you graduate with two degrees. And what was the process of applying for law schools like for you? My husband was, well, he wasn't my husband then, he was my boyfriend, but he was in Washington, D.C., had taken a job with the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And so I applied only to D.C. area law schools, hoping I would get into Georgetown because it was the best school in D.C. And um, I was fortunate and was, in fact, admitted. And so that's where I went to law school. Well, I'm sure you worked hard to get there. What was going to, to law school in D.C., but also at, at the top University of Georgetown? Yeah, it was it was a really interesting experience. You would think being in Washington, D.C. meant every day I was at the Supreme Court or at the legislature watching law in action. Uh, the truth is, like most law students, I was hidden in my books for most of the three years. But I do remember we were able to attend some of some of the oral arguments at the Supreme Court and just experience, you know, national lawmaking uh, firsthand from time to time um, when we could put the books down. Well, I know that you were uh, involved in Law Review. I think you were one of the editors there at Georgetown Law Review. Um, that's pretty impressive. Uh, what kinds of things did you work on? So the, the Law Review. Yeah, the Law Review was fun. When we took over our editorial board, took over, we were 14 months behind in publication. So it was a whirlwind year. When we left, we were on schedule. Um, but uh, we published several times a year, I think six or eight times a year at the at the Law Review at Georgetown. So uh, it was um, a lot of work. Uh, there were times I wondered whether, you know, it, 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 it mattered so much. I mean, you know, my grandmother didn't know what the Law Review was, but she still loved me. <laughs> but but it but it but it was kind of our mission to make sure that we could take a, a Law Review that had a great uh, reputation, but needed to work on its timeliness and put it back on track. Well, I know that you had the goal of going into academia and being on law school faculty, um, but were you ever tempted after being on Law Review and having this great degree? I'm sure you had opportunities to go into private practice. Were you ever tempted to go? I was. I had planned to practice for a few years before taking the academic route. My judge, though, asked that her clerks not make commitments to law firms because that would uh, cause a conflict for her if she had to uh, deal with the case that involved that particular law firm. So um, so my firm had agreed to leave the offer open until after I finished clerking. And while I was clerking, I was given the opportunity to do a fellowship at the University of Chicago, which I, I went to do. I still thought I would come back to Washington, D.C. and practice for a couple of years, but um, that academic mission really grew on me at the time. And so I ended up never practicing. 
Well, let's backtrack a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your your judge and your clerkship and and how you, uh, what kind of cases you worked on. So I, I clerk for Judge uh, Dolores Slobiter. And very early in my clerkship year, she became the chief judge, the first ever female chief judge of the Third Circuit. Um, and it was really interesting to watch the administration of the court system uh, while working with her. And the third, the, just for our listeners, the Third Circuit includes New York, and New Jersey or um, no? Well, New York is the second circuit. Second circuit. Yeah. And what so is the third? It's uh, Delaware. Oh, Delaware. The U.S. Virgin Islands, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. Oh, that's an interesting combo. <laughs> it's a very interesting combo. Um, my judge assigned all of the biz, because I'd been an economics major, assigned all of the business law related cases to me, which on the third circuit are fascinating because, you know, Delaware's the place Corporate. of incorporation yeah. for so so many companies. So it was it was an amazing year. My year, I clerked from 1990 to 1991. That happened to be a year when the major airlines were declaring bankruptcy um, and hoping to reorganize uh, under bankruptcy protection. And we had several emergency bankruptcy appeals, which were fascinating to me. Quite surprisingly, I remember avoiding bankruptcy law like the plague in law school because it seemed like that that statute was too long and too complicated <laughs> to be fun. But uh, but it was it was really interesting. Um, the court had 24 hours to decide an emergency appeal, and those were the only cases where clerks from different chambers could work together because of the time constraint. Usually, you, you worked with your judge, but you didn't work on cases with other chambers. So it was uh, it was a Really fun, special place. Mm -hmm. um, well, all, she she sounds like she was a trailblazer. She was the first uh, female chief. She um, was the first everything. She, I think she was the first woman in her law firm, the first partner in her law firm, the first female faculty member at Temple Law School, the first female faculty member, maybe the first tenured female faculty member at University of Pennsylvania Law School. I, she may have been the first female judge on the Third Circuit, but certainly the first chief. And did you... Did she impart any wisdom on you? Did you learn anything that you've kept with you? Um, you know what? She was very big on teaching us a certain type of discipline schedule, which has stuck with me to this day. So it was her belief, and she's certainly right, that we're only good for 10 super focused work hours a day which doesn't mean we can't work longer than 10 hours. We often do. But the the, the sort of hard focus work can only be done within a 10 hour day. And so she taught us to start relatively early in the morning to finish relatively early in the evening. And if we were very disciplined about it, we could avoid weekends, uh, we could avoid evenings. Um, but she didn't want us to waste time getting lunch or doctor's <laughs> appointments or hair appointments or anything like that, if we could focus those 10 hours and you know, coming out straight out of school where you have all day and all night to do your work. It was it was hard to adjust. But to to this day, I still take her advice. All of my hard work gets scheduled within 10 hours and uh, in a single day, five days a week. And uh, it's amazing what you can get done when you really focus on making sure that's quality undistracted time. Well, let's switch gears. What was the first place that you got I did a, a fellowship at the University of Chicago. Then I actually joined the economics department at Clemson University for two and a half years. Oh, so you weren't a law professor first. I was not a law professor first. I was interested in law and economics, taking what I had learned in economics and applying it to law. I didn't have a graduate 
degree in the field. So instead, I went to an economics department to work with economists, co-author with economists, and take some grad audit some graduate classes um, so that I had the substantive background I needed for law and economics. And did you teach at Clemson? Or? I did. Yes, uh -huh. I taught their uh, undergraduate business law courses. And for how many years? For two and a half years. And why was the first time you ended up in law school? In a law school. Then I joined the tenure track faculty at George Mason's Law School, which at the time was a 100% law and economics law school. Everyone on the faculty uh, researched uh, and wrote and taught in law and economics. Um, so and that's was, in Fairfax, is it, that? It is. Well, the the law schools um, on their Arlington campus, oh. but the university's in Fairfax. Yes. And so you were ba back up north. Um, and how long did you, were you there? So I was there for six years during a couple of the years I taught both at George Mason and back at Georgetown, uh, where I had attended law school, which was fun. And then after about six years, I went to Vanderbilt law school and I was there for 16 years. That's a long time. Yes. I know that you were at a number of other law schools. You taught at Georgetown, your yes. alma mater, and you went to Northwestern as well. Tell me a little bit about the changes that you have seen in law students or just students from the time you started teaching to, to today. So law students have morphed a great deal since when I attended law school. So when I attended law school, most of us were no good at math, couldn't stand the sight of blood, but smart and wanted to make a good living, and law seemed by default the place, uh, the, the 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 place to, to to go. And I would say most of my classmates in law school weren't really sure what law school was about, weren't sure what being a lawyer was about. But by default, it seemed like the the, the best step uh, after um, you know receiving an undergraduate degree. Today's law students are much more educated. Right. So it's now viewed to be a myth or a, um, a lottery ticket win to uh, earn large amounts of money as a lawyer. So most students who come to law school are thinking about a tough job market, are thinking about all the preparation that it takes to be a, a good qualified lawyer. And they've really done their homework about different types of law schools and different types of educational opportunities. Also, they're more likely to be in law school out of a motivation to make a difference in the world than they are out of a motivation to earn a large income. I think they all want to succeed economically, but I don't think that's the primary driver for most students who come to law school these days. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is that it used to be that law students, I know this was for me in the 90s when I went to law school, it was kind of by default. Um, and But now that they're, the students that come in are much more intentional um, about what they want to achieve and, and how they want to go about it. That's right. They've thought about, they understand what law school curriculum looks like. They understand more about the skills they need to develop along the way in order to be effective lawyers. It's more than just book smarts. Um, they are um, poised and experienced in networking and eager to use those skills to um, you know, help find a job, help find mentorship. Um, they, they're, they're just much more sophisticated than we were. 
when we're talking about law students and their skills, I know um, I'll tell you that I mentioned to some people that I was talking, you know, that I work with that uh, and who are FSU law alumni that I was interviewing you and they wanted me to ask you why the law school was having petting zoos, yoga sessions and sessions with llamas. And <laughs> they were I guess they were concerned that graduates I know when we went to law school, we were supposed to be tough. Yes. And now they might be seeming soft. But how would you address that? And yeah. So the so when I, I, I let me just start by saying when I joined the law school at Florida State, I was a little surprised by how much time and effort we spent working with students on wellness programs. Um, we have, uh, you know, the most prominent national scholar on lawyer well-being and happiness uh, at Florida State University's law school. So I think Florida State has been well ahead of the curve um, in thinking about uh, wellness and effective stress management. And who is so, that? Uh, Larry Krieger, Professor Larry Krieger. Okay. Yeah, he does talks all over the country um, on what, what makes lawyers happy or unhappy. Um, he uh, he teaches a weekly yoga class um, and he um, will work with students who are interested in little five minute sessions to uh, reduce muscle tension and increase focus. Um, he's really very effective. Justice Lawson's done a lot of wellness work with us and we have a program um, we call Wellness Wednesdays. So the llamas come on uh, one particular Wednesday uh, pretty close to Valentine's Day um, as, a, as a special sort of Wednesday break. Uh, when I when I came from the outside, I was I thought this was peculiar. Um, and uh, uh, I will say I worried a little bit about, you know, were we were we encouraging the right kind of toughness? But what I have learned over the course of the last few years is that all of us, um, our students in particular, but I'll set them aside for a second. Um, all of us have within our own powers the ability to manage very stressful environments and to thrive in them, but only if we're really thoughtful about how we manage that stress and kind of try to keep it to optimal levels. Um, going back to my judge in the 10 focused hours, um, stress is a motivator and it can help focus us until it gets extreme or until we fail to think about how to take care of all of ourselves, our financial selves, our physical selves, our nutritional selves, et cetera, um, in order to have the highest performance levels possible. And so I've learned myself from these sessions and these classes and what we work with our students on. I've learned myself how to manage stress. I've learned that burnout is in our minds and under our control. Um, yes, there are many factors that contribute to burnout, but burnout is about how we respond to those things that are happening in the world. Uh, so so the, the idea is to make a more effective, harder working attorney um, by teaching our students how to take care of themselves and how to manage their stress levels. I think too often, Young, young students or young professionals um, will either run from stress or um, allow stress to turn into a form of anxiety, which can be self-defeating. And neither of those make 
good, solid, effective lawyers. And so the wellness programs are really focused on that and also providing for our students opportunities to have fun that don't include alcohol, (laughs) drugs, um, and other kind of negative uh, activities uh, that that can ultimately interfere with students' academic success. Well, we are promoted by the Center for for Professionalism, which obviously promotes wellness uh, in lawyers. It sounds like that they already, they'll need less of the CLEs for wellness if they've already learned those skills. I think 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 that's right. I think think we we all do well with a reminder. I know I come to some of the first wellness um, activities or lectures that we have every year just to remind myself of where we you know where we all need to be and and, and where we need to focus um, but yes I mean and I think FSU law school was ahead of the curve um, on this topic but now all law schools are asked by the ABA to put in place wellness programs um, and and to focus on all of the dimensions of wellness um, in order to hopefully, you know, produce new lawyers who are ready to take on the world in more positive and productive ways. Well, I think we've touched on this a little bit, but besides the mindfulness of the new next generation, I guess it's Gen X that's coming up. um, What other traits do you see that are different from the past in, in the new attorneys coming up. Yeah, so um, so we've, we've just begun to see the new Gen Z students come to law school. So we're all ready to Gen Z. Um, I would say the Gen Z students are harder working. Um, they are, uh, as I said, more thoughtful, more prepared, more organized, have a better sense of where they're going. Do you think um, that's because they're more intentional that they've made this conscious choice of, I know it's going to be hard and I'm going to have difficulty finding a job and that I really want this and they're willing to do the work. Yes. I think, I think, I think, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, they're more open about mental health challenges um, and uh, anxiety seems to um seems to be a struggle for a larger percentage of of Gen Z students. So they're working harder, but they're also very anxious. Um, But at the same time, they've um, sought help or counseling in the past um, and will continue to do so. So they're they're open about their struggles. Um, So I can't tell whether, are they experiencing more anxiety or just more open about the fact of anxiety? Um, But they are seeking ways to cope with that, um, with those challenges as productively and positively as possible. They're much more tech savvy than the previous generation. They sometimes don't understand why we do things like send email and get on Facebook because that seems so old school. So, you know, we, we, we work with them to understand that when they get into that job environment, um, their work will come to them probably via email. Their clients will communicate with them probably via email. Um, but Facebook is still a way we communicate with one another in, in the legal world. Um, but uh, but also just um, trying to fuel their real desire to learn and understand how technology can help them in the practice of law. Um, well, we also are going to see, I guess, the graduates from this year uh, started in COVID. So how will that, or how has that inf- affected 
the law school experience, but I'm sure that there have been changes and struggles and challenges for the for all of those students that had to go through that time. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think for a while we watched students struggle to get effective legal training and education in a remote space for some that adjustment came quickly and easily for others. It was more difficult um, depending on learning styles. Um, sometimes that in-person experience can actually be distracting. And so the Zoom space was more focused and easier to concentrate. For others, it was just the opposite. I think our students learned a lot about remote advocacy. Um, they really led the way in figuring out how to conduct an oral argument over Zoom or, um, uh, you know, our trial team did a lot of remote competitions. And so to the extent that legal advocacy will remain remote or some sort of hybrid, I think they develop skills ahead ahead of anyone, uh, which is great. I still remember a faculty member who teaches um, a jury selection course with us saying, no, there's no way we can do voir dire remotely. It's just not going to work. It's not possible. And I said, the IT team will work with you. We'll have to be creative. We'll figure this out. And of course, fast forward a few months and juries were being selected remotely. Um, and so it's, it actually started in law school, the, you know, the learning how to do that. Um, now we see students coming into law school with undergraduate uh, remote teaching. Um, and most universities, Florida State included, encourage lots of flexibility with students who might be ill or might have um, you know, families uh, very severely affected by COVID, et cetera. And so we've really had to start making very clear our expectations that deadlines are deadlines and that classes need to be attended because I think some of some of our students experience more laxity um, uh, in those undergraduate spaces. Um, so we've been we've been working with students on that front. I think this year, we're in a really great space because students don't take anything for granted that's happening in person. Uh, they come to all the events and all the talks and show up for the classes and with a certain kind of eagerness because they've all had a couple of years of, you know, either completely remote education or or hybrid education. And so it's it's been really nice to see that eagerness um, uh, back with us. Well, I jumped ahead to students, but I but I want to refocus on on your journey um, and how you became the dean of FSU Law School. What does a dean of a law school do? Like, what is your everyday? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great question because every day is different for me. So it's very it's very hard to you know sort of provide a job description for a dean. But I think of myself as. Um, simultaneously the the official representative of Florida State University College of Law. So it's it's my job to uh, make sure we are making um, contacts and connections and taking advantage of opportunities that really help our students in their educational journey, help our faculty um, really be the best scholars and teachers that they can be. 
Um, so I do that, but I'm also sort of the manager of a lot of staff and faculty. So um, focused um, on making sure that we have the resources we need to administer uh, a, a law school in the law school environment. Um, but I also teach and mentor students and um, kind of work on uh, work with all of all of our constituencies um, to make sure that we're providing the right kind of example and the right kind of mentorship for um, for our students moving forward. So it's a little bit of everything. How did you jump from academia and teaching, being on faculty, uh, to wanting to be in the administration or being in the position of a dean of a, a major law school? Yeah, so there are smaller administrative uh, possibilities and opportunities uh, for all, you know, full professors. So um, most will experiment with one or two, and sometimes the work seems awful, and those faculty will return to full-time teaching and research and stay there. And for others, it's um, it's a, it, it provides an, a window to see another space and another type of leadership. So I served as our vice dean at Vanderbilt University's law school, and I was in charge of developing the curriculum. And when I was the vice dean, it was 2008 to 2010, so I um, had to help move the law school through the recession space, um, which was uh, difficult but exciting to think really creatively, which is probably the closest to law practice I ever got, was trying to think about how to use resources to and in, in, in work within rules, um, but the cracks between rules to figure out how to provide everything to the community that really needed it um, while they were struggling. I can imagine it's a lot of bureaucracy, but also crisis management. Um, you know, exactly right. and uh, dealing with faculty and students. Uh, it's a lot of juggling. So it was, it was. And then I also served as director of graduate studies for our PhD in law and economics that Vanderbilt had. And that was really fun because um, you were bringing faculty and students from multiple disciplines together, multiple sets of expectations and environments and trying to build a, a, a space where everyone could thrive and communicate and work well with one another. Um, and I found that really fun as well. So I, I never really thought I would be a law school dean. That wasn't my goal. Uh, in 2008, though, I came to visit Florida State's College of Law for the summer and spent a few weeks with the faculty and really loved the environment. So um, when my predecessor, Don Widener, stepped down after about 25 years of being the dean um, of the College of Law, um, that opportunity appealed to me to, to so come back you, to Tallahassee. So you, you intentionally came to Tallahassee. <laughs> and um, what kind of process? Was it a search process? Did you put your name in? How, how, do, how does one become the dean? Yes, I, I did. So there, there was a search process. Um, there's uh, at Florida State University, the chair of the committee comes from outside the law school. And then the committee itself consists of faculty students and alumni um, from the College of Law. And um, then they take applications for a couple of months and then um, and then engage in interview process. And luckily that worked out well for me. Well, uh, in, in our opening, we I discuss a little bit about 
the history of women in academia and in administration at law schools. And I know now I think it's 44 or 45% of the deans of, of ABA law schools are women. Uh, I know that we've talked about the sisterhood of the bench, sisters of the bench. I wonder if there's a similar uh, camaraderie or, or circle group or support group w- among the female deans. Yeah, there, 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 there is. Although we're we're so plentiful now that I almost <laughs> feel like maybe we're we're coming to the end of feeling we need our own group or our own support group. But there are three or four deans conferences every year over the course of the year, and at every conference there's a special opportunity for female deans to get together, and we may go axe throwing <laughs> or <laughs> or out, out to have wine um, and cheese somewhere, but. Um, so we we have kind of found our own space to get together, but um, it's it as you say it's 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 normal, right? You're almost as likely to see a female dean in a law school dean's office than you are to see a male dean, and I think part of that is that the academy became one of the first places where a very smart, talented lawyer could engage a professional career. Uh, and and be and be taken seriously um, and be given equal opportunities within that career setting. And, um, so, private practice, you know, it came later. There's still more struggle. Probably true for the judiciary as well. Um, and you need several decades of a healthy environment for women within a particular professional setting before you're going to see. Uh, substantial representation um, for 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 women um, at the leadership level. Well, we are seeing more women. I, I don't know if that's true for uh, for people of color. Do you think that you were teaching for such a long time that it's improved because there are better opportunities, but also better opportunities in, in undergraduate and that maybe the profession has changed a little bit too, that is more inviting for all, for just more things in your life besides just the practice of law. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I I think though too, that the academy is a place where from relatively early on, one could have flexibility in their daily schedule. So, you know, when I was raising kids, as long as I wasn't in the classroom, I could leave the office at three o'clock, could go pick up kids and get them to their afternoon activity and then come in and finish my work. Because um, you had classes, like you had a schedule, right. that's right? Yes, that's mm-hmm. right. That's right. Whereas, you know, I remember just what my little time as a summer associate law firm days, you know, you weren't supposed to leave. You were supposed to be present. That was part of, you know, putting your time in and, you know, paying your dues. Um, you it would be frowned upon to say, well, I'm going to go pick up my kids. I'll be back. Um, but in the academy, that was just viewed to be part of what we did. Um, you said 10 hour days at the beginning. And I was thinking it's more like 12 hour days for <laughs> private practice. But Exactly. <laughs> but you know, my, my days are often 12 hour days. It's just um, the extra two hours are not trying to do hard concentrating things. Right. Oh. What would you say to someone who is in the practice of law who was thinking about either being an adjunct or coming, making that leap over to academia? So I I can't encourage that enough. The 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 law school setting is such a high energy space um, to 
to, to have the opportunity to meet with students who are excited to embark on a career in the law, who want help and education along the way is so much fun and so gratifying. Um, I, 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 I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Um, so I get three or four emails every day from lawyers out there in the world who are thinking it would might be great to pick up a course. Um, so it wouldn't be unusual to approach your local law school and to say, Hey, just want to know, want you to know I'm here. I'd be willing to teach a course here. Are, here's a copy of my resume or CV. And, you know, here are some courses I might have some interest in teaching. Every law school relies as heavily on their adjunct faculty as they do their tenure, tenure track faculty. And um, we're always um, recruiting um, folks to, to teach either semester long courses or come and give a guest lecture or um, you know, we, some law schools now have week long courses. Um, so there's, there's lots of ways to, to fit that in, but, um, it's, I think it's always rewarding for, for those who teach with us. Converting to a full-time teaching position from practice is a little bit more complicated because today's law schools are looking for research experience and research trajectories. So, if you were interested in making that type of move, I would recommend applying for fellowships. I did a fellowship at the University of Chicago, which was one year where I taught, but I didn't have a full-time teaching load. And that gave me extra time to write an article and start my um, uh, research agenda. And fellowships now can run for a couple of years and really provide you an opportunity to learn how to teach and get a set of teaching evaluations so that you can show that you, you know, you're a competent teacher, but also give you some time to think about what, um, what a research agenda might look like. Well, I know a number of the judges that I work with at DOA are adjunct professors or have been either at, at FSU, um, and they have always found it rewarding. The thought of having to publish prevents them or prevents most people from thinking, oh, I mean, that's that's how we always grew up is thinking you had to publish to be a to be a professor. So yeah. that seems like it would be hard. Yeah. I think it's either it's something that you either love the idea of or you don't. Um I I, I joke that my struggle in stress management as a dean is that for my entire career, writing has been my meditation. Um, to sit in a quiet room and think about what I want to communicate and how I want to communicate it and why the way I'm thinking is different from others that have come before me is um, it's just something that I've always really loved to do. And when I became dean, I had to figure out, you know, what 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 is my new form of meditation? Because I, I you know, my job now is to make sure everyone else launches, not worry about my own, you know, research space. And, um, and so, yeah, so I think if you don't love that idea, you shouldn't try to, you know, get a full-time position in the academy, but the adjunct position, um, you know, does provide you that um, really an environment where you spend several hours a week 
really helping to launch that next generation. And that's really special. It's a good opportunity. Well, you talked about stress management and meditation. I know that you swim, but what else do you do to relieve the stress or when you're not being the head of the, the law yeah. school? Yeah. So I've learned through our own wellness programs, I've learned yoga breathing and I've learned um, tension release stretches. So we all carry our tension in a particular place in our body. And if we can figure out how to massage the muscles, take deep breaths and let those muscles go, it makes a huge difference um, in our mental attitude toward whatever we do for the rest of the day. Um, in my case, it's my shoulders and my neck. And so um, I've got rollers and I've got uh, massagers and um, and I try every evening when I get home, no matter how late it is, to just spend five minutes doing that before I turn to anything else. Um, and then that way, whatever else I do for the evening is pleasurable as opposed to feeling stressful because it's something I have to do still. Well, what do you do when you are having fun or yeah. what do you do for extra? I love to swim. I love to read. Um, we have a black lab. I love to just play with my dog. Um, we have a concrete swimming pool, so he has as much fun swimming as do I. So often it's a, you know, good game of catch in the <laughs> pool. Um, but um, yeah, so all, you know, peaceful family type activities are also fun. Well, before we leave, uh, if you had one piece of advice to a law school graduate or a new attorney, what would it be? Don't ever stop learning. I often hear our third-year law students say, oh, thank goodness, school is over, I'm done. Um, and I think that a good legal career is one where you're learning all the time, learning new things, exploring new things, and it might not be a formal classroom or a final exam, but um, I think when we stop aspiring to learn and we stop learning, that's that's when the burnout can set in. Um, so to think of every single day as an opportunity to learn some new things, I think, is my one biggest piece of advice. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today. We learned so much, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. This is my first podcast, so it's been really special. You did appreciate great. it. <laughs> I want to thank the sound engineer, Clay Shaw, for making us sound great, and Katie Young, Mitchell Ramsey, and Rebecca Bandy from the Latimer Center of Professionalism for keeping us on the air. If you'd like more information on FSU Law School or Dean O'Connor, check out the links under this posting, where you'll also find links to the paper titled Women in U.S. Law Schools, 1948 to 2021, by Elizabeth Katz and Kyle Rosema, published August 16, 2022, and the article titled Women Continue to Outpace Men in Law School Enrollment in the October 2022 publication of the Florida Bar News. I also want to encourage you to listen to the next episode of Never Contemplated, which will feature the Dean of University of Florida College of Law, Laura Ann Rosenberry. Thanks again for listening and stay safe.